On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And as always, I'm joined by the wonderful and talented Stefania. Stefania, how are you doing? I'm good. I I don't know how any of us will be doing um, in a few weeks from now when this podcast airs, because it's it's a very different air when you're like living in an election and then right after an election. So I want to say I'm good, but who knows how I'll feel in a few weeks from now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I, I hear what you're saying. These are uh, these are worrying times, exciting times. What's going to happen? Hey, we, we don't know. And in a matter of weeks, it can all change. So I hear what you're saying. And, you know, on that note, I know that CAH is working on something right now. Do you want to uh, tell us more about it? Yeah, well, right now, um, and the reason I, you know, it's it, the election is impacting me and my work is because we're running uh, the vote housing campaign. Um, and really, it'll wrap right after the election happens, because what we're trying to do is uh, working with tons of partners across, across the country um, on really six key uh, platform points that we want to see reflected in uh, the platforms of the five major parties. And I mean, really, most importantly, we just want to see housing uh, and solutions to homelessness on the table when these new MPs walk into Parliament. So fingers crossed, we actually start getting uh, real solutions, not just for people who are owning homes, but for everyone uh, who who can't afford that. And, and I think that's the reality for the majority of us Canadians. So yeah, I think um, it's gonna be really interesting to see how our campaign does, how the election falls, but fingers crossed it goes to folks who are ready to do the hard work. Absolutely, and I think you're doing a, a tremendous job having major impact. I've seen it, uh, housing, homelessness, affordability is on everyone's minds. And speaking of which, we have an amazing guest today that uh, can talk uh, with, with experience about this. Can you tell us yeah, about them? 
Absolutely. I'm so excited to have this guest on. And it's again, it'll be an interesting time because like I said, right now, as we're recording this, the writ dropped just a week ago and this will come right after the election is called. So um, very excited for this conversation. I think it's going to be really timely. Um, so I'm very honored to introduce Mumilak Kakak, an Inuk woman and very recent former member of parliament and human rights defender. Elected it back in 2019, she is one of the few people to have given a speech in the House of Commons before being elected. Originally from Baker Lake, she now lives in Ukaluit, the capital of Nunavut. Mumilak has worked with Nunavut Tungavik, Inc., the Quality of Life Secretariat in the Government of Nunavut, Inuit Taparit Kanatami, and Kulik Energy Corporation, among other organizations. She fights for adequate housing, clean water, and food security in the North, among many other things. Mumilak, welcome to the show. Matna, thank you so much for having me. And uh, just for a little clarification, and I think it's important because of what we will be talking about, I actually did have to leave Iqaluit uh, at the end of last year because in the three years, almost three years that I was living there, I couldn't find housing. I couldn't find a place as a member of parliament um, to live. So I actually, my residence in Nunavut is at my mom and dad's place in Baker Lake since uh, November of last year. So um, that's how dire the housing situation is in Nunavut is that the member of parliament has been put in a situation like that. So just to clarify that a little bit. Wow. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing <laughs> that and, and kind of painting the, the picture of how dire it is. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us today. We, we were so looking forward to having you uh, come on. And of course, it's, uh, you know, you're, we're having that when election is called. Now, you announced a few months ago that you wouldn't be running again, but this snap election has really cut your time as MP short. Can you talk about what you're wrapping up right now uh, as an MP, as your time as an MP comes to an end? Yeah, there's a, a number of things. Uh, I've been extremely busy since I've been elected. And in uh, July, when the Liberal government had forced a specific time to give farewell speeches, I figured that that was my last opportunity to speak on Hansard, and I wasn't going to let that go. What happened, though, was that the media did a horrible job nationally on reporting it and had made false claims, had falsely made a story to say I've stepped down, I've resigned, which all was completely not true. Uh, not even two days later, I was on the prop committee trying to get amendments done on Bill C-19. Uh, a week from there, me and Charlie uh, were organizing a march that uh, we had hundreds of people show up on Parliament Hill for. And that is something I'm, I'm not going to stop pushing. So there's a number of things that I've been working on and continue, will continue to work on, regardless of what title I carry. Uh, but what I think is important is that clarification. I did not resign. I did not step down. I did not walk away from anything. All I simply said was, I will not be running again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember your farewell speech because it, it, it pretty much rocked the internet um, on June 15th, shortly following your announcement that you wouldn't be seeking re-election. Um, and yeah, it was such a fumble to say that you had resigned when you obviously hadn't. Like uh, you were saying farewell, but in like a, a future tense, right? And so, yeah, it just, 
I hate when that happens because it feels like it undercuts what you were really saying, like your actual message um, when you delivered that farewell speech, but that should have been the focus. And, you know, given you've had some space since delivering it, do you think that if you had to give that speech today, do you feel like it would be any different? Um, so much has happened since. And did the reactions or conversations it stirred after, did anything surprise you? In, in some ways, so to the first point in your question, would it be different? Absolutely not. It would be the exact same speech before I was elected, every single day I was elected, every single day after I get elected until this institution decides to actually work for who it serves. That speech will ring true for not just me, but for every Indigenous and minority individual that decides that they're going to enter that institution, that decides that they're going to go into a place that isn't built for them. That Those words rock the internet because it's an example on a national level that everyday people, everyday Indigenous peoples, racialized individuals experience on a daily basis on all different kinds of levels. All I did was bring an example of racism to a national level to show people that it's happening even over here. And that makes it just as valid as when it trickles all the way down through the systems. So I don't think that anything about that wording would change. Hopefully it, it could in my lifetime, but, but I, I think I could come back in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years and still give the same speech because that speech can be given 10 years ago, 30 years ago. It, this intenseness of the impacts of colonization for indigenous people, for Inuit has been ongoing and has been pack-a-punched and it's not something that just goes away because we decide to put it into the air which leads me into what I want to get into next. The conversation is changing for non-Indigenous people. That does not mean that lives for Indigenous people are changing. That does not mean that just because non-Indigenous people are becoming more aware, more upset, that there is somehow magically something happening for Indigenous people. The conversation has started to change for non-Indigenous people. And we are saying, finally, finally. But that gives no room to think that everything is somehow right now. Everything is that unjust has somehow been made just. There's no, that's not where we're at in any way, shape or form. And that's the incredibly, incredibly frustrating part is non-Indigenous people, primarily white people, white people think that they've cracked some kind of special code and they've figured it out. Meanwhile, they're not actually putting or understanding really the full context of, context of things. So now we turn to Indigenous people to ask for answers, ask us questions instead of turning to institutions that are supposed to serve us and say, what are you doing to help Indigenous people? So I think since that, I know since giving that speech that that has sparked conversation for non-Indigenous people, it has helped Indigenous people, I hope, find some more strength and ability to say that, say their truth and speak their truth and be treated as human. And but this is a conversation that is only changing right now for non-Indigenous people. It is not, it's, it's been the same for decades. It's been the same for over a hundred years for Indigenous people. We know what's happened to us. We know that history. We know that we've needed that support. And 
there's no gold star for white people just because you're talking about it now. So that's the, that's where I'm feeling. And that's, I think there's a level of frustration, uh, definitely for myself. And I think for indigenous people, because that's exactly, well, now, you know, so what are you going to do to help us with it? Yeah, absolutely. It's so ingrained in our institutions. And I feel like, you know, we're walking into dangerous territory with just because we're talking about it are is our words like powerful words like decolonization going to become buzzwords are we actually going to see action is, are our institutions going to not only get the message but start actually working to change it to change the story on what's happening and I just want to say your speech was very powerful and I hope it does a lot more than just change the conversation although I'm glad to see that there was some of that but yeah talking and action are two very different concepts. Absolutely. And, you know, um, in, in your, in your opening there, you were talking about, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it's, I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, and obviously you've been, um, very active since June 15th. And of course, very much before that, and you led the March for truth and justice and called on then justice minister, David Lamenny to launch an investigation into the crimes against humanity after the first wave of unmarked graves hit the mainstream, um, what would you like to see and hear from the new, now newly elected MPs? Because really, we haven't heard it talked about enough during the election so far. I don't think we've really heard of it talked about at all. And this is like, this is the great way, the phenomenal way that institutions like the federal uh, uses their influences and abilities to <laughs> create what they want you to see so what we saw happen is in March in March they said we're going to be talking to uh, a committee we're going to be talking about picking a new governor general and uh, they said we have Natan Obed on the committee we have an Inuk on the committee right away I my Ears went up and I said, well, the next governor general is probably going to be indigenous. I wouldn't be surprised if it's an Inuk. Here we go. This is the beginning of the stages of moving into an election here in the next few months. Uh, shortly after or around the same time was when I actually said I won't be running again because I knew this was the beginning of things coming up. I had worked so hard, so, so hard to build a story and a some sort of awareness around Nunavut and I didn't want that to go away and I, I, I don't want to and just because I'm leaving politics it doesn't mean that the next person coming in can't continue to to amplify Nunavut voices and so once that was announced I said okay well they're starting to work on that so let me just share so that people have time to get ready and people have time to start out their own things um, since that, we then saw that announcement of 215, 215 children found, discovered. Indigenous people throughout the country were saying that's not a discovery, it's a confirmation for non-Indigenous people because we know that our people have been there for decades. We then saw another number two, or sorry, not after 215, we then saw 751. And these two numbers, I hope most Canadians know, but that's the thing, they're numbers. 
we're not talking about them in what they are. They're children. They're human beings. They're little ones that were forcibly taken from their parents to be submerged in what somebody else thought was the right way in living. These weren't schools. These were institutions meant to strip an identity on a way of being. 215 children, babies, teens, probably some adults. The point is these are all brown bodies. They're human beings that were, and still in the Canadian institution, in the Canadian constitution, in law, are less than everybody else, are treated as property. Section uh, 91.24 includes quote unquote Indians, indigenous people. As a part of the Canadian constitution, indigenous people are treated as a resource and a piece of property. And all those kinds of things are, are nicely masked because the government has a, a great way of being able to share what they want to share when they want to share, even when um, things are really dark. So we heard those two numbers. And then right away, we heard, well, there's a new governor general. They are indigenous. That's amazing. That's so great. That right away took off from everything that had to do with the residential schools. I'd never seen so many articles on a governor general before. I'd never seen such a crazy, huge blow up about it. How they, they were asking, how should we celebrate? When, where in the history have we ever asked, how do we celebrate a governor general? These are all great tactics, though, to say, like you mentioned, buzzwords. Well, we're working towards reconciliation. Well, we're working towards developing relation. Well, the fact of the matter is, regardless of who the governor general is, that position is meant to call an election is meant to dissolve parliament. That is their sole responsibility. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if they're indigenous or not, Inuk or not, it doesn't matter. That is their sole responsibility. And then they have like, quote unquote, other duties and a couple other bullet points. So what we saw, and, and I've been thinking, I've been thinking the the BC uncovering of the graves was in fact funded by the federal institution. They knew, they knew that that number was going to come out. So in March, they said, well, we have an Inuk who's on the committee who's gonna help us pick a governor general. They knew in the background that this funding was being put out so that graves were going to be uncovered. And then they said, well, look, here's the next governor general. She's Inuk, look how great that is. How do we celebrate? We're working towards reconciliation. We're working and it does look great, doesn't it? It looks phenomenal from the outside. What it actually means is, is not a lot. <laughs> it means that there is still that symbolic relation that does not fulfill actual equality, that does not actually give Indigenous people the right to self-determination or equal playing field to right to life. And instead, what we have 
turned into in society is an allowance of being able to have a picture painted for us without asking who's holding those paintbrushes and without asking who's interpreting that message and without asking how that message came to be. And in this time and space and what we're in is either a continuation of Indigenous suffering or a national awakening. And there can't be, it's one or the other. We have been suffering for decades. Nunavut has the highest suicide rate at times in the world. How in Canada, in this country, is there a place, a very, a very small population that has the highest, why are people deciding to kill themselves most there, here in Canada, here in a, in a space where we have an Inuk governor general. And it's because of all these abilities and ways to, actions are more than words. Being able to tell two sides of the story, who writes the story? Often the victor. You don't hear how the people got to be in power. You just hear how powerful that they are. You don't realize who they walk onto or who they've stepped onto to get there. And we've just, even throughout COVID, and I, and I think this is also why people are starting to have, be able to relate a lot more, be able to be more compassionate and go out and seek that injustice to try and make it just even within their own community. Because we've all been through a period of time where we felt forced into isolation, when we were forced into isolation, I should say. And for Inuit, it's as harsh as this is to say, because it really is, it's welcome to our lives for the past 70 years. Welcome to life in the North where it costs thousands of dollars to leave your home community. It's being able to feed yourself and your family or pay for rent is a, a crazy situation that people are more in often than not. Seven out of 10 children go to school hungry. One in three people live in an overcrowded home in Nunavut. There are so many things and so many restrictions and so many barriers that the federal government, the federal institution has forced Inuit and Northerners into when COVID hit for the rest of the country, it, a lot of people were saying, well, it's exactly how we feel and exactly the boxes we've been put into and exactly the spaces we've been forced into by these institutions. And I think that in a, in a sense, you know, might be one of those very, very rare silver linings in, in the, you know, in the chaos of all that uh, we saw truly how unequal things are. We saw uh, an ability to come together and support one another. And I think, and I hope, and what I'm scared of right now is that we are missing out on the ability to recreate normal. And 
we're completely letting it slip us by and, and we're like we're in an election we've allowed them to just go right back into the normal normal ways these are the people that represent us these are the people that get elected into position that is supposed to work for the rest of the country and yet they have been able to master and their and craft their message to make you feel like the best thing to do is to go back to how things were in 2019 right before covid hit and there is such a urgency and creation of urgency to get there that we're not stopping and and I was trying to say this back in April back in May stop people stop and take a breath and say this is not normal let's recreate normal let's talk about new normal because this is messed up this is messed up beyond belief and we are right about to walk out of covid and we're right about to walk back into what that norm was before and that's i'm really scared that's where we're and we're i see that's where we're full blown heading right back into the same conversations i'd be having in November of 2019 that I'd be having here if the house were coming back this year that I'd be having and the next representative will continue to be forced to have because there's an opportunity for us here right now and we're just allowing those with perceived power even because we're the ones with power we're the ones that vote them in you know they they're supposed to work for the rest of the country not the other way around and i i hope people aren't realize are aren't letting that power in them slip past their fingers in wanting to run to what we think is normal it's not <laughs> for the reason so well put and and i think you're so right that listen we got to look beyond the headlines we got to stop being uh, just blindly led uh, and know that actions um, are important Going forward to speaking of actions, uh, you have done an incredible job of uh, bringing attention to uh, Nunavut um, for so long. And in fact, uh, last August, you did a three week tour uh, across uh, Nunavut, visiting eight communities and about a hundred homes. Now the result of this tour um, came by way of report, uh, sick of waiting report on Nunavut's housing crisis. I'm hoping you can share with us what led you to take this tour and write the report and as well, uh, how you went about it for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read it. Right. So Nunavut has, uh, has been experiencing a housing crisis since Nunavut was way before it was created, since forced settlements were starting to be. So Nunavut, and the north, a lot of the north, but I'm going to talk specifically to Nunavut, is a territory because after the Cold War, Americans came up north and basically said, oh, look, Canada's not taking care of their northerners. Canada said, oh, oh, dear. Oh, dear. We can't have that out in the world because America brought it to the press. So they were telling the rest of the world that Canada's not taking care of their northerners. Canada does not like to have a bad image. So right away, they said, well, no, yeah, we are. And that's where we started seeing relocation. And they also wanted to be able to claim that land and all of these different things going on. Uh, 
So in around the 1940s and 50s and later in the 1970s, mostly in Nunavik or Northern Quebec, in Inuit Nungangat, in Northern NWT, Nunavut, Northern Quebec, and Northern Labrador, there were a number of things that the federal institution was doing to ensure that they can claim that land, that they can control those individuals on that land, and that they can use us as economic chips. So what we started seeing happen after America told the rest of the world, well, Canada's not taking care of its northerners, Canada realized that it had to do something real quick. And uh, but they had already learned so much from how they were treating First Nations individuals down south and all of their racist laws through the Indian Act and things like that. They realized they needed to be smarter. They needed to be quicker. They needed to be much more impactful. And they still are. So in some of those ways, we saw uh, forced relocation, which meant uh, Inuit used to be a, a nomadic people. We moved with the seasons and with the animals, uh, not barely two generations ago. This is not something I'm talking about, sure, a hundred years ago, but I'm talking about 70 years ago. I'm talking about people of grandparents who are alive and were raised until they were 11, 12, 15 on the land. They didn't know what this white society was until their last 60, 65 years of life here in the last little while. So keep uh, people really need to keep that in mind that my father was born on the land. My father was not born in a hospital and somehow we are now in this day and age. So in the 1940s and 50s, when all of these things were happening, a whole bunch of other things were happening, but this is where we see the beginning of the housing crisis. When Inuit were forcibly moved into communities, the first pictures you can see very clearly an RCMP detachment, a, usually a government building, usually a church, and then igloos and or tents, depending on the time of year, of course. Uh, because right off the bat, Inuit were not given adequate housing, even though they were forced to live in one space. From there, uh, moved to what we call matchbox houses, which every community I went to has at least two or three rows of those uh, in the eight communities I went to. And those are shacks. They would be considered rundown shacks here. They, they would not be considered a home uh, in Ottawa or Toronto or any, any Southern city. And um, that has just not evolved, not developed, not kept up to par with anything. Um, the housing crisis in Nunavut, right off the bat, the federal institution didn't care, uh, continues not to, and continues to use every excuse to not fulfill their obligations. So with that beginning in mind that happened barely 70 years ago with understanding that we are currently in the housing crisis where one in three people live in an overcrowded home. There's a lot of things that have not <laughs> or have yet to happen in that amount of time. So uh, with that, there are a whole bunch of other things. Uh, lack of basic health services. Uh, and, you know, I could go down all of these rabbit holes and people <laughs> can do their own research, but the, the lack of basic health services, most communities, if you are uh, 
going to have a child, you leave a month before outside of Nunavut, just in case there are any complications, because Nunavut does not have any capacity to handle any kind of pregnancy with any risk. Um, the lack of mental health, I can't even say basic because it's not even up to like, it, it's, it's astonishing. The lack of basic health care, mental health care, access to education, access to safe space, access to childcare space, access to activities, access to recreation, access to infrastructure, access to telecom community structure. I can go on and on and on. Every single topic I can go on and on and on about because it is so dire in, in Nunavut. And I was just talking about housing. I was just talking about the structure of the homes in which people lived. And in that was devastation, turmoil, anger, violence, frustration, any negative word you can think of, it was there. I visited eight communities, over a hundred homes in every community. I asked to sit down uh, with people like the MLA, the mayor, the housing manager, just to say, look, I'm not here to point the finger at anyone here. This is the fault of the federal institution and has been for decades. There were near fights. I was constantly calming down. People are so frustrated in communities. It is ripping families apart. It is the turmoil it has created that the federal institution does not have to see, does not have to interact with, does not have to deal with, refuses to. Uh, just all of these things. And all I'm talking about is housing, making sure people have a structure to live in that is safe, that is that can work in their environment. And people didn't understand all the dots I'm trying to connect here in this very short amount of time and what that meant and how that trickled effect into things like the suicide crisis, like the high rates of violence, like poverty. And in order for people, I think, to care, they have to see, they have to hear uh, directly from people. And that was incredibly difficult because everywhere I went in Nunavut said, why are you doing this? We know this is a crisis. We know you're, you're basically kicking and beating it or whatever the phrase is, you know, kicking a dead horse or whatever, um, because... We, we all know this. So why are you coming around and talking to us about it now? Like, why would, you, why would you go up to somebody that's homeless and say, you know, you're homeless? You know, it, that's the same kind of feeling that it was when I was going into people's homes. It was like, why are you coming here and telling me what I already know? So it was incredibly difficult in those uh, three weeks with, with that. And people were so wonderful. People were so opening and welcoming to sharing. But it was, it was definitely that feeling of why are like, you, you know, we know, why do you have to kind of, it's rebringing constantly rebringing things up. And, but I knew going back to when Americans uh, went back and said, look, Canada's not taking care of the people in the North. I knew that that, 
the Canadian institution wasn't going to do anything unless they got scared, unless the nation knew something, unless I could, the, the goal was to bring it international. And it didn't get there, uh, unfortunately, uh, because we might have been able to see a bit happen. Um, and the goal was to bring it national. And I, and I do think I brought it to a level that, uh, that uh, I don't know the right word to you, that maybe people know what, I don't know, you know, like it, that's the frustrating thing. And going back to earlier in our conversation, it's just trying to bring an awareness to get people to care enough to do something about it because we've been crying out for help and we've been trying for decades. We can't do this alone. And that's, it's, you harm indigenous people more or there is a national awakening and a national support because we've been trying to do this for decades and we can't, we can't. And there's no way we can alone. And in the housing tour, it, it wasn't, uh, of course it wasn't easy because it's complex and there are so many layers to it. But what I think people really missed the mark on was that your structure of your home and where you lay your head at night really determines your quality of life and your well-being and really impacts that. And if you don't have a safe place every night, you will eventually start to feel like it's not worth it. And it sometimes does not take that long. And with all of the other things I've talked about, I'm just talking about housing. I'm not talking about the suicide crisis, the lack of affordable, healthy food, the lack of access to cultural activities, the lack of access to language. I'm talking about the foundational aspects of being a human being. And that's, you know, in, in my two years in this position and still here now that the Ritz job, I, I can't, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that, that I'm, that people come up to me and they say that they're honored and inspired. And I feel like saying there's nothing honorable or inspiring about fighting for basic rights. There's nothing honorable about saying my people are facing a suicide epidemic because of an institution. There's nothing inspiring about being put through the ringer, putting it on a national stage and not seeing justice for indigenous people. I don't find anything inspiring or honorable of what I've had to do because what, of, what Inuit have been forced through. And that's very much where my head's been um, since the writ dropped. And like you, you mentioned in, in the beginning, Stephanie, like who knows, you know, I know where I'm at right here, right now. But who knows in a few weeks after election, who knows what that's going to look like. I'm hopeful. Uh, we can't ever not have hope. But I'm also, you know, I think we're here most of the time kind of holding our breath <laughs> to see what happens. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart. 
Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Absolutely, and I hear you when you're saying, hey, this is not inspirational. It's frustrating as hell, and we, we can totally understand that. Now, you talked about the power on this tour of hearing the stories. I'm wondering, I think stories are very powerful, and it, and it really might push people into action. Uh, if you're comfortable, can you share some of the stories you heard on the tour? Yeah, and I and I think it's important for listeners to understand as well that a lot of the things that are talked about in the North and for majority Inuit communities are like the most extreme. Like the commonalities in communities, in families, in intergenerational trauma, it's the most extreme forms of abuse that are now continuing to play out. So when when all of these things were happening and Inuit were being forcibly relocated and put into churches or schools or boarding homes, uh, people have different names for them, there were a number of uh, predators that worked in these institutions. One of them, Revoir, who uh, myself and Bita Elmik uh, have been talking about Pita has been talking about him since before I was born. Since before I was born, Pita has been talking about a man who sexually abused him as a child and is trying to get justice for that and has never. Pita is now in his 70s and is one of three Inuk men who came forward to talk about this. That is huge. That is phenomenal that is gut-wrenching that's heartbreaking like walking next to him in the march was both powerful and sad because it was elder beta walking for child beta because no one else was trying to provide that justice for him the man who abused him abused probably dozens of other Inuit children. Those Inuit children didn't learn love, didn't learn parenting skills, didn't learn caring, didn't learn certain things that we need in life to have a fruitful life, to have that quality of well-being. And these predators who were put into communities, these communities that were forcibly put on Inuit by the federal institution, these predators are still alive and, and roaming around walking free. But what they have done is they have created a mass trickle effect that has resulted in the suicide epidemic that we see, has resulted in the violence and the poverty that we see ring so, so loudly in our communities. And I heard lots of stories. I heard, and they're, they're all harsh. They're all intense. They're all 
there was one in particular that really breaks my heart. I I walked into a home in the Qadimi region and um, there was a, a couple sitting at the table and one of the parents was blind and they were telling me uh, about the condition of their home and I was asking about certain spaces and the father said, well, my 11-year-old um, hung himself and my 17-year-old found him and like trashed the place in that moment in time. He didn't know what to do. And I said, yeah, like, of what, what do you do when you find your 11-year-old sibling? And he started crying and he was blind. And I, I could never get that out of my head. And he, he said, I'm sorry, I don't mean to get into family things. I don't mean to get into. And I said, no, <laughs> this is your, your life. This is what happened to your home. And now you sit here and you look at it every day and you're reminded why. Because the federal institution won't provide the funding to provide adequate housing for you and your family like they should be for decades because all of your children should have had opportunity to have their own space and own education and own like so many restrictions and to go into someone's home and to learn about and hear about how their home came to be so it stems from people like Revoir it stems from institutions like the federal and RCMP and churches. It comes from that. It has nothing to do with Inuit and Inuit culture. It has nothing to do with being Inuk. And that's what still communities don't even realize because communities are so oppressed and so dependent on the federal institution because that's how they make it to be. Because that's how they, the victor writes the script. The victor writes how they want it to look, how they want it to be. And it's not at all like that. And people are struggling so much and so oppressed that you can't take off those blinders. And if you do, you're ripping off parts of yourself with it. And it's going to hurt. And you can't ever put them back on. And you got to realize that being from a history of forcible turmoil creates a very sometimes complex and difficult present. But at the same time, necessarily eliminate those, what I say, simple solutions, basic human rights, clean water, adequate housing and affordable food, healthy food. Start there and people will flourish and people will be fine. And yeah, I think you know that's uh, the frustrating part. And I hope the next members can come in with less of a, take off those pink rose glasses, take off those blinders, take off that clouded, get out of your privilege, get into community, like learn who you're representing, learn who your people are. Like 
man, I'm so good at my job because I care so much because I know who I'm representing because that the most vital part about my job has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with who I represent. The only reason I'm here is because I got elected into this position and I can't stress to you how seriously I take that. And that's why I'm so good at my job because I care so much and you don't see that, you know, you haven't, you know, I'd, I'd like to hope that more people like me will come through, but honestly, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it can happen in this lifetime. I don't know if people are willing to push it to that in this lifetime. I am. And I've been trying to say it's about seizing opportunities we can all be history, revolutionary, extraordinary. We all can. And here I am leading by example because I'm tired of waiting for everyone else. I'm tired of waiting for people to pick up the pace too. I'm tired of waiting for words to be wielded into action. I'm here. I'm doing it. I've been doing it the last two years. I've been doing it since before that, since 2017. I was doing it in my hometown before that. I've been doing it my whole life. I'm I'm tired of waiting and I hope that these, you know, especially NDP candidates, but that people can see that that's going to be the only party that, you know, uh, I like this phrase, it's the only party that hasn't colonized Indigenous people. So why don't we give NDP a shot? <laughs> and, you know, in all this election and party line and platform and people can can do that people can ring those things off so easily people can we we know people only run with conservatives in certain parts of the west because that's the seat that they're going to win that's how politics unfortunately works we don't have to have it like that we can recreate that normal right here is the ability for people to look at their candidates and say, who cares? Who is the person who is actually going to care about me and represent me, who actually knows me, who actually knows and has an understanding of my needs? And I don't mean like you as an individual because that can get a bit much, but does the leadership understand or potential leadership understand yourself and your community? Do they understand who they're representing? Do they have the best interest? Do they seem to? And of course, you know, we can always have that, well, somebody said something now and they do something later, but that's also where we need to continue. It's not just about election time. It's about all the times in between that. But what we're looking at here is who we're going to be looking at and getting to do things for the next four years or how, however it works out. Um, and, and that's the most important part. That's the thing we need to be aware of is that we can all be extraordinary and revolutionary and be history as long as we get up and wield that into action and it doesn't have to be you can make anything magic all I did was take opportunities that's all I did all I got approached and I said 
okay, sure, let me try. That's all I did and all I continue to do. And I hope that through that people can see that not only can they do whatever they want, but they can also uphold people and places to do the right thing and do what they should be. Yeah, I, you know, that makes me think about how folks, you know, you say like, oh, when I vote, I, you know, the gut reaction of voters is to think of it's someone that they would sit down and have a beer with. And I, I get, I get that the approachability thing, but I, I very much agree. It's, do you care about my writing? Do you care about me, my neighbors? Are you going to toe the party line? Are you going to actually fight? And I know so much of the fighting in parties happen behind closed doors, but you know, I want to, I want to see, I want to see what led to the actions or inaction. And, and that is really hard to vote that way. Um, but it's so important. We pay attention, just like you said, you know, not just during the election, but we keep it up after the election too. And, and Mumilak, I just, I want to bring it back um, to, to the, uh, the sick of waiting report and quote something that you wrote. Um, Cause I really want my, our listeners to hear it. Promises don't get rid of mold. Words don't fix windows and doors. Empathy doesn't fix leaking pipes. You place these issues, and and throughout this, you've been talking about placing these issues quite rightly and squarely on the shoulders of the federal government, the federal institution. And I know this is a big question, but can you share some steps the federal government can take to rectify this serious problem now that we're going to have some newly elected MPs. I mean, right away, they can appoint the special prosecutor prosecutor that Charlie Angus and I have been pushing on. I can't remember what fancy they appointed some kind of thing, which has no, um, uh, what's the word? No teeth, no nothing that they can actually do. It's just a pen. It's like, um, it's one of their symbolic gestures that we always see from them um not actually anything meaningful so a uh, special prosecutor 100 percent is something that they can do right off the bat i think as well where where are the reportings on the graves they went they went completely cold dead they stopped talking about them there are thousands that have been found. There are thousands that have been uncovered now. And we haven't been hearing about that whatsoever. It makes me wonder how much the federal institution really uses their media outlets to their advantage that we don't see. So I I think um, that And, and that's why it's so important to go out and vote because that's how I got elected and people saw something in, in me that was able to at least shake things up for a little bit. And that's why it's, it's important that we have that human to human aspect, that understanding and awareness of is this person in it for them or in it for you? And that's the whole point of being a member of parliament is to be a representative for, for others. Um, I hope we can start to move towards 
more of an understanding and and that's the thing i you know have a hard time uh, i wonder if that happens in the institution or happens out of it and is forced onto the institution um, from externally and i i think that there's a number of things probably that need to happen at the same time the government needs to be forced to do the right thing while other people are creating their own new ways of doing things and um, being more inclusive and being, you know, making sure that words like uh, diverse and inclusion actually hold some meaning and actually um, you, you see that reflected in the reality. So I think people need to get aware, ask questions, um, go and get involved to your comfort. And that's, a, that's the biggest part, to your comfort. This world isn't for everyone. And there are ways to interact with it without directly being involved in it. There are ways to influence it without being directly a part of politics all the time. And there's a part for every single person to play and every single person is vital to it. And I, I hope that I've been able to bring some sort of humanity to a place that often doesn't have it, often doesn't allow it and often doesn't want it. And I hope even though I'm not running again um, and politics currently isn't for me, that that doesn't mean that somebody else who is indigenous or Inuk uh, can't do what I just did and be better. You know, could you imagine if I wanted to stay in politics, if I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm so for all the legislation, da, 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 da. like I'm just not, yeah, I, I, I was just seriously asked if I'd be interested in an opportunity and it was an opportunity to help as many people as I could in the best way I thought possible and I took it. I'm not really interested in the whole policy procedure aspect of politics and had so much learning myself to do. And so could you imagine if somebody like me who was like, yeah, I love all that kind of legislation, policy, procedure stuff. I love it. Like how great they would be at their job then here, how much fun that they could have in this, this space. Like, I'm just saying it's not for me personally right here, right now. And I hope, and unfortunately, because the media did such a bad job at, at uh, uh, sharing that story, um, I hope that through myself directly, people will see uh, and find strength and determination and whatever they want to do because people can do whatever you you can do whatever you want to do the biggest barrier often is yourself and take opportunities seize them and just try your best and try to do more and do better that's all we can do absolutely and well said i mean i think you are the definition of if it's going to be, it's up to me. Others have to take action. Now, by the time this podcast will air, the election will be over. Um, what experiences will you be taking with you? And what has stood out for your time as an MP? I think there's a lot of things. I really need to take time off and process what just happened in the last two years. Personally, it's been incredibly difficult. I, 
have a lot to share. I have a lot to, you know, the farewell speech, sure, it knocked everybody over, but that was one, one pretty, you know, one small, in my mind, one small part of my job that I knew I was going to be interacting with anyways. In no way, shape or form have I shared my experience. Because when I said earlier, my, I, it's, my priority is representing constituents. That's all I'm focused on. And I myself haven't processed things or really haven't taken care of myself enough, uh, really haven't um, made my uh, supports and my tools as strong as I would like them to be. And so for me, I, I really need to go and figure out what just happened here in two years. Um, not only did I bring things eventually to an international level, but I really truly realized and felt that I never had a right to self-determination. And I didn't feel that until a few months ago. And in that was difficult because I realized that if I did, I'd probably be in fashion. I'd probably be a film director. I'd probably be, so I'm, I've been here the last little bit trying to figure out, okay, what does seven-year-old me like? What does 17-year-old me like? Because when I was seven and 17, we were all surrounded by such turmoil. We were all just in survival mode all the time. I didn't have the right to self-determination. I didn't have the right to pick my opportunity. I never had the opportunity to find out what I was passionate about or what I loved because it was all about helping as many people as I could stay in survival mode so they're not passing away or getting out of survival mode. And in that, I was in survival mode too a lot of the time. And those are the kinds of rippling horrors that colonization creates that someone like me, who is considered very privileged in the territory, or I, I would consider myself very privileged, privileged in the territory, meaning there is no abuse in my home, meaning there is healthy food, clean water, and my home was always safe. But everywhere around me was turmoil. Everywhere around me was just trying to help others. And, you know, to be 27, to get elected as member because you feel no one's listening and you're tired of waiting. And then to get to this point and be like, oh, I never learned along the way what I liked and what I thought was fun and what I wanted to do was really heartbreaking for me and really, really difficult for me to process and wrap my head around especially on this stage, because people look at me and so inspirational, right? And so strong. And so, and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing at the time kind of thing. I don't even know what I like. Like, so for myself, very much is processing what just happened, what I just did, what I just accomplished. Um, and then, you know, I've been really open about my mental health and those kinds of things. And I need to learn how to enjoy food again. People that know me can see I've lost more than 50 pounds since being elected. That's not healthy. And 
these kinds of things are real and these kinds of things can happen to anyone and these kinds of things require support and that's okay because I'm a human being just like everybody else's because there are people that slip and people that need help at times and that's perfectly normal and humane it's human <laughs> especially after everything I just talked about could you imagine being how how would you be like I'm hunky-dory oh yeah I'm just gonna go and figure out the next thing in my life and just move on to the next nah <laughs> I'm trying to take a break <laughs> and decompress so I'll be doing that for sure but then this fight with the special prosecutor and Revoir doesn't stop. I do not want to see Pita pass away because he is in his 70s without seeing justice. His abuser is roaming around scot-free in France. There have been reporters that have walked up to him to ask him about specific people he knows. And I told Pita, I, I don't want this to end i i will go to france if that if that if need be and he said i'll come with you so i need to go take a good break figure out what just happened here and then that'll probably figuring that out how do we ensure that pressure is kept up because i refuse i refuse there was Pita, Maurice, and Jack all came forward, and one has already passed away. And I, the more days we let go by, the more weeks, the more months, the more time we just let the institutions get away with what they're getting away with, the more people go through each and every day without justice. And that, uh, that's not right. I can't. I can't be okay with that. So I'm going to go take a little break and then I'm going to need everybody's support and help again because I'm not done that fight and I'm not stopping until that fight is won and we see justice for it. So that'll be the next, next bit. It'll be an interesting, great, fun, wild time. I'm sure of it. Absolutely. And I, um, I was, I was going to ask you, you know, what are you most looking forward to? And I think you've answered that. And I think I'm looking forward to it as well. And, and I imagine, of course, that um, I hope that you take that time that you need to process and as much time as it takes, of course. And then, you know, as you start to investigate and, and reflect what your passions are, um, I can absolutely see you finding a marriage between, you know, being a director or getting into film and weaving in the justice seeking that you are doing. Right. Oh my gosh. So right. Exciting. So I, so I was going to ask you, what are you most looking forward to? I feel like you kind of answered it. And, uh, and I just wanted to add that little, like, Hey, if you haven't thought of that, I would watch whatever you put up. Um, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you my, what my next question was, and that is, you know, um, what advice do you have for the, the now newly elected MPs that are about to enter office? Um, I think that it's, I think that everybody does 
their thing their way not every and and that's the weirdest thing about that job it's like well how do you be a member of parliament there's no job description to say well you got to go to x amount of meetings a week and you got to make x phone calls and reply to x there's no kind of set thing standard for how do you conduct yourself as a member some members uh i i forget which liberal it was but we hadn't like we as in the country the nation hadn't heard an email response for like eight months or something like that and uh, was like well where is this person um there were people who hadn't stood up to speak in the house of commons until a year later uh a year in and you know there there are all these different kinds of things that can be happening all the time i think for new members it's (laughs) don't do it like I did. (laughs) Take it slow, find your footing. I went in just head first through the door, running natural style as fast as I could. And I never stopped. And stop before you get to the door (laughs) and open it. (laughs) Hire your staff, get your offices set up, get your people as in like if you have volunteers if you have networks if you have people that you're going to be working with on a continuous basis get that all set up get yourself settled get your devices in check figure out you know your colleagues and who you like to have conversations with and who maybe you can lean on outside don't you don't need to go in rushing so crazy Uh, Give yourself between election day and and Christmas, and I'd say by January, then you can have good setup, your staff, your office, your spaces, your connections you'll be using consistently, and just take a few months in the beginning. (laughs) Um, And then have your support, like your own personal core support, your own, we we all should have that as individuals anyways. so not just for members, but for anyone to have your own, your own team. You know, I have certain friends or colleagues I call for certain things. My mom is my ultimate for some stuff. And, you know, I have another really close friend for other things. And I have different spaces I can go to, for, to make sure my needs are met and make sure I'm taken care of. And we should all have that. We should all, I have someone I check in with every day we should all have a friend we just say hi how are you oh I'm good or maybe you had a bad day and you can just tell them and that's I you know set yourself up for that support set yourself up for success set yours you're you're the person in this role representing hundreds or thousands of people if you're not good then you can't do that job good your staff is key, man. I got to pump out so much good work because I had amazing staff. I have amazing, amazing staff. My guys are phenomenal. Um, there is no way I could do you know, half the things you, or you know, you wouldn't know about any of the good things I've been doing without any of my staff. And I just, I have a phenomenal team. Um, so set your base, um, set your supports, and you should be good should be good and the rest you can figure it out figure it believe the rest is up to you (laughs) like the rest you got to believe in yourself and you take it from there and you'll be fine you'll be totally fine sage advice um 
And I know that all of our listeners are going to be excited to see what you do next. If they want to find out what you do next and uh, follow your journey, where can they go? Um, social media, it's all pretty straightforward. Hard to find uh, many people with similar even name to mine. So Mumila or Mumila Kakak. Um, and then for any kind of, uh, I really don't know what's next as much as, you know, I know it's something creative. I have no clue what that looks like. I've no, there's so many spaces I want to go into. Um, and definitely mumilak.kakak at gmail.com. No idea is too small or too big or too, I've been in drag. I've been <laughs> to basic military training. I've worked in suicide prevention. I've worked with a dental therapist. I've done everything you can kind of think of. So no idea is too to anything and I'm just I'm I'm excited and I hope that people continue to stay involved continue to stay aware and continue to like I always say stay tuned stay with me and stay updated and we will and I think a lot of us will and Mumi like I just again want to say thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to sit down with Michael and I it was a really um difficult conversation and we appreciate you um, sharing it with us. So thank you again so much for joining us on the show today. No, thank you both. Wow. So I was writing some stuff down uh, while we were talking because I'm thinking, you know, from this podcast, uh, it was powerful. It was inspirational. It was encouraging. We, We heard about actions matter. Let's quit talking. Let's quit being led. Ask beyond um beyond the headlines push it you know don't be satisfied with good enough is not good enough uh, how inspiring stuff uh, a great guest yeah i i agree and and one that i was i was particularly looking forward to um because it's it's you know we we talked about how victors write history but i think mumilak is uh, a victor in in her own right given um what she's had to overcome and what uh, what that position did to her. And I understand why um, she struggles with that word inspirational and honor. And I something I also wanted to pull out of what she said that, I mean, so much of what she said struck me, but something that I've been thinking about in particular recently was that drop-off of Build Back Better, the big United Nations term when COVID started. And it was like, we're going to build back better. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I am so worried and concerned about that return to normalcy because that normalcy saw, you know, colonization running rampant, being is totally normalized, ingrained in our institutions from the ground up. Um, Homelessness, at the the numbers that we're seeing, you know, the housing crisis growing. So I don't want to return to normal either. And calling a snap election in the middle of of, uh, COVID-19 when all the best experts were saying, okay, well, if you're gonna run an election, it should be over 36 days, should be around 50 and just, nope, we're just gonna do 36 days. We're gonna get in and out uh, in a very busy time where either in August people are away or, you know, uh, the beginning of school, like people's lives haven't 
gone back to normal really as much as, as we want it to. And it, and it shouldn't, we need to bring that back. We need to think about how can we better build a future where sure we respond better to something like this pandemic, but we also aren't seeing someone like Mumilak come in and be an MP and be like, I'm out, you know, what a, what a loss to the institution where we need to see that change and someone who very honestly wanted to bring it. So I want to see, I do have hope that we will see more folks like her that run and claim power that, uh, that actually do care and really want to do the difficult work of change because change is, change is hard. Yes. And, and you bring up um, the word hope. You heard that numerous times when she spoke. Hope is there. The challenges are there, but there's lots of hope and change is needed. Uh, let's not go back to the way things are. Let's take action and make real change happen. Uh, that's the least we can do. Hey, I, I hope you not only enjoyed this, you're educated and you're more aware, but listeners, let's take action. Another great episode of On The Way Home. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Steph. See you next week. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.